Well, every year at Thanksgiving, my grandpa, who we call Upachin, gets the honor of sharing and praying right before we dive into the food. And since I can remember, Upachin takes time to recount uh, where we came from. Uh, he traces the story of being born and raised in India, immigrating to the States with a few dollars in his pocket and little to no idea of what the future would hold. And then he shares how God provided over and over and over again. He provided financially, provided relationally, spiritually, and then in terms of generations of people who are now right in front of him. So as our stomachs kind of begin to growl, Apachin will pray for us, he'll thank God, and then he'll bless each of us. Now, Apachin does this because he especially wants a new generation, his grandkids and beyond, to remember what God has done, to live for God today, and to stay committed to God in the future. Now, Moses was in a similar place in the book of Deuteronomy. He's at the end of his life, and he's speaking to a new generation of people. Moses wants them to remember what God did in generations past, to know what God requires of them right now, and to trust that God would follow through on his promises in the future. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the first five books of the Bible, and they're all written by Moses. Genesis tells a story from creation through the partial fulfillment of three key promises that God made to Abraham. These promises included a huge family. God promised that there would be many, many, many people that come from Abraham's line. God promised that he would have a unique relationship with these people, something special compared to everyone else in the whole world. And he promised land, a place where God would meet with his people in a unique way. These three promises in Genesis become the underlying anticipation throughout the next four books of the Bible and really the entire Bible. Several generations have passed by the time of Exodus, and God had already begun fulfilling his promises. Abraham's family had ballooned into this large nation, and though they were enslaved in a foreign land at the beginning, God miraculously frees them from slavery and begins leading them to that land that he had promised. On the way, they stop at Mount Sinai, and God begins teaching them what it looks like to have a special relationship with a holy God. Now, the book of Leviticus is a book that takes place at Mount Sinai where God expands on the best way to flourish, to flourish in the relationship with him, with one another, and the world around them. And then last week, we heard about numbers, and that recounts the journey from Mount Sinai to the brink of the promised land, Canaan. But the people didn't believe God would actually come through, and so God punishes them, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, keeping an entire generation from entering the promised land. Now, remember the promises from the book of Genesis. By the time of Deuteronomy, God had made them a great nation. He had given them that unique relationship. All that was left was the land. Now, Deuteronomy is essentially three sermons from Moses to this new generation of Israelites that are poised to finally, finally enter the land that God had promised. 
Moses was, uh, is aware that many of these folks wouldn't remember what God did back in Egypt. I mean, some of them weren't even alive. And he knew that there would be many nations around them that would be opposed to God's way. And at the end of the day, he just wanted to make sure that they would believe and they would enter the land. The book itself has a similar structure to a formal treaty of that time. Now, in your handout, you'll see it in your bulletin that kind of lays out the book of Deuteronomy. You'll see kind of three big sections to the book. We're going to get to that in just a second. But underneath those sections, you'll see things like preamble, historical prologue, general laws, specific laws, blessings and curses, document clause, witnesses. All of these are actually elements of a treaty. It was formed after a treaty of that time, and a treaty requires two parties to have buy-in. In Deuteronomy, Moses shares a treaty that God is making to the people. It's a treaty of grace. Now, I'll be using this word grace today quite a bit. It means undeserved gift. Though the people had betrayed God over and over again, God's been steady and unwavering on his promises. So what does a treaty require? Well, it requires a response. Where do the people stand? How will they respond to the promises that God has made them? And Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's pleading with the people to remember, to obey, and to faithfully anticipate God to come through. And that's what Deuteronomy says to us too. God's grace compels us to respond to him. Now, Moses recounts God's grace in three sermons. God's grace in history, God's grace in commandments, and God's grace in the future with the transition at the end. God's grace in history, God's grace in commandments, and then God's grace in the future, and then a transition. Now, let's walk through each one of them. So first, God's grace in history. This is what we see at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy all the way to chapter 4. Moses' first sermon is like a montage video that highlights the great things about God and what he's done. It's meant to grip the people and help them embrace their unique moment on the brink of the promised land. So let's just look at a snippet. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we're going to see, we're going to start at verse 32. So Deuteronomy 4, verse 32, we're going to go through verse 40. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, 
driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land of the Lord your God is giving you for all time. To help the people know God's grace in history, Moses reminds them that God is supreme and above all others, and yet he loves them and is involved. Look at the first little bit of verse 36 and then verse 37. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice. And then verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring. And this amazing God is unique. Look at the end of verse 39. That the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other God is in full charge of heaven and earth, and no one else even comes close. Now, if this God, it's this God that speaks to the people in fire and miraculously rescues them from this superpower nation. Look at verses 33 and 34. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. See, Moses wants to ensure these folks remember the incredible things that God had done for them. Some of them may have remembered it themselves, but many of them would have no idea. They were, they were not yet born. See, the things we have, we tend to forget, and the things we don't have, we tend to fixate on. Now look at our own lives. Think about our body. It's likely easier to think about what is lacking than what is working. It's easy to see that maybe we could stand to lose a few pounds or address a health issue, but we can forget that for most of us, we got up this morning and we're able to stand and walk. If you can hear me, your hearts are still beating and your lungs are still pumping. Think about your life spiritually. It's easy to see the things that you still fall short in, the things that are not quite right. And for sure, we should address those things. But think about what we do have. You have a Bible in your hands, the very words of God accessible to you in a language that you can understand. You've got a community to be a part of where you can freely gather and live life with. If you follow Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Moses here shows the people how good they have it. The God of the entire universe has come down and he's lovingly chosen them. God's given them a family to be a part of and promises of a land of safety and abundance to look forward to. So what should their response look like? Well, this leads to the second sermon. This is God's grace in commandments. It makes up the majority of the book from the end of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 26. Moses unpacks God's grace to the people through commandments. 
Now, commandments don't sound like an undeserved gift. They, they sound like rigid, limiting rules. Now, here's the huge thing to keep in mind when we think about God and what he calls us to. God's love precedes his commandments. Think about it. God rescues the people from Egypt. Then he gives them commands. He goes in front of the people, and then he tells them to follow. He lovingly chooses people to be a part of his family, and then he tells them what it looks like to thrive as a member of that family. In light of God's grace in history, this is what uh, verse 40 says. This is, this is uh, Deuteronomy 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 40. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. The people should respond to God's grace in, com in commands by obeying him. And starting at the edge of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 26, Mo Moses details what God declared right and wrong. Now, he begins with the Ten Commandments. He moves to general laws, and then he gets to really specific ones. While these may just seem like rules to us, it was God's grace to the people because he was teaching them what it looked like to relate to a holy God and with the people around them. Now, one of the most famous places of God unfolding his rules and regulations is in chapter 6. Now, look at chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. At the core of God's command is a heart of love. And Moses is recounting for the folks, love God with all that you have, more than anything else in the world, and then you'll see God's rules and regulations as welcomed gifts. But again, how can commands be grace? Uh, aren't commands limiting? Having an outside entity dictate what you should and shouldn't do is hard for us to hear. Now, we want to express ourselves the way we think is best. We want to define what's right and wrong. We want to follow our own hearts. Our 2,021 ears can hear rules and think limits. We can hear commands and think oppression. We define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, without limit or constraint, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. But that kind of freedom doesn't exist. We all have natural and then self-imposed limitations. Natural limitations are things like our age, our makeup, our health, our interests, our abilities. No matter how badly I want to dunk a basketball, it's just not going to happen. Being limited is part of what it means to be human. But we all have self-imposed limitations as well, constraints we willingly choose because there's something that we want or there's something that we love. An athlete pushes their body to the limits, trains in extreme circumstances, and is constrained and instructed by a coach, all for the freedom to pursue a championship. Many of you have or will constrain yourself to be educated and trained. You'll constrain your time. You'll constrain your spending for the potential future freedom of getting a job that you want. 
We put limits on our eating to be physically healthy. We put limits on our relationships so that we can be relationally healthy. We put limits on our impulses so we can get a good grade or finish an important project. We limit ourselves to 280 characters or a static picture or a video clip for the freedom to participate on social media. We all embrace these limits because we want something else even more, which is why freedom in terms of doing whatever, whenever, doesn't exist. Instead, consider freedom as embracing certain limitations and constraints to live aligned with your deepest longing and design. An airplane is designed to be flown and a car is designed to be driven. True freedom is using them for what they're designed for. It would be silly at best and destructive at worst to attempt to fly a car or drive an airplane down the street. True freedom welcomes direction, limitation, and even rules. And who better to provide these commands than the one who designed us and walked in our shoes? God's commands here in Deuteronomy were grace to the people because it showed them how to be truly free. Like lanes in a highway ensuring hundreds of cars can travel safely farther and faster, God's commands free people to experience the deep love that God has for them, harmony with one another, and flourishing in the world around them. But Moses does not end with the grace of what is wrong and right and rules and regulations. He goes on to the third sermon. It's the last little bit of the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 27 through 34. It's God's grace to them in the future. And then a transition. Moses' third sermon unpacks God's grace for the people in the future and in the transition awaiting them. Now look first at Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. This is what it says. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. See, God has blessings in store for the people that believe and remain loyal to him. But there's a flip side, too. Now flip all the way to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we're going to look at starting in verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and then verse 15. We're going to go through verse 20. See, I've set before you today a life of, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of, of it. But if your hearts turn away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land 
that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. God has grace for the people in the future. He clearly calls them to a way of life, one of a heart full of love and commitment to God that leads to obeying his commandments. And what's the result of all this? Well, this is the second half of verse 16. Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Blessing and multiplication await the people if they love and follow God. But if they choose to walk away from God, now look at verse 17 and 18. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. In light of all this, the grace that God has shown them in history, the grace he's given them in commands, the grace God has promised for them in the future and the transition that's upcoming, how does it all come to a head? Well, Moses calls the people in verse, at the end of verse 19 like this, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Moses pleads with the people to respond to God's grace by loving, obeying, and holding fast to him. Moses recounts and calls a new generation not to forget where they've come from and what God has done. He gives them a history to be linked to, but he also gives them a family to journey with in full devotion to God. And then he pushes them forward, pleading them, pleading with them on the banks of the promised land to trust that he will come through, that God would come through even when it's tough. Now, the book of Deuteronomy ends with the sadness of Moses' death and the anticipation of what will come. Will the people believe God and enter the land? Will they love and obey God and be blessed? Or will they love and obey someone else and face judgment? The reality is, is that we face these questions ourselves today. We all worship something. David Foster Wallace, an author who wasn't a Christian, put it like this. In the day-to-day trenches of life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. We all need a story to be a part of, a hero to follow, a compass to tell us what's right and wrong, and a dream to anticipate. We all worship something. And as we wrap up today, consider your life in light of these three questions. And here's the first one. What do you worship? Or what are you drawn to worship? What do you worship? Now, worship is a church word. You can identify what you worship by considering what you daydream about over and over again, or what it is easy to spend money on or overspend on consistently, or what in your life, if you lost, would devastate you to the core where you'd question whether it's worth living. Whatever we worship is what we look to define what is right and wrong, to paint a picture of the good life now and in the future. There are 
lots of places that we can look to as our God. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we don't. It could be money or family or career or safety. It could be politics or power or freedom or some social movement. It could be reputation or influence, love or marital status. Now, all those things aren't necessarily bad, but when we hold them to such a degree that we live for them, it becomes a pseudo-God in our lives. We begin worshiping it. No matter what you worship, there will always be something else jockeying for that ultimate spot in our heart. Perhaps you've walked with God, this God, or the Bible for a long time. There are always going to be things around you that look to distract you, that look to pull your attention, and that look ultimately to take your allegiance away from him. See, whatever we worship demands, it demands our allegiance. Whatever we love the most will dictate our lives. It will dictate our decisions, our relationships, our plans, and our dreams. Which leads to the second question. Is what you're worshiping or what you're drawn to fulfilling you? Is whatever draws you, does that thing fulfill you? Foster Wallace, the author I just quoted before, he goes on to say this. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Does what you worship sustain you when life gets tough? See, every pseudo-God promises joy and satisfaction, but if you actually achieve it, you, re- you realize it's not enough. Like Tom Brady and Taylor Swift and Jim Carrey, all of whom have reached the pinnacle of their career and yet have expressed how it has not been enough. Each of them have said when they got to the pinnacle, wow, I thought there would be more. I thought there would be more. On the flip side, if you fail to get and reach your pseudo-God, you will punish yourself with resentment, guilt, or shame. Like Wall Street brokers who took their lives after the stock market crash of 2008, when we lose or fail to hold on to a pseudo-God, it makes us despair for life itself. But the God of the Bible is different. He's the only one who knows you inside and out and yet still loves us and accepts us. He's the only one who, as another author put it, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. If you find him, he will fulfill you, and if you fail him, he will forgive you. And number three, this is the third question, would you give your allegiance or continue to give your allegiance to the God you heard about today? It means believing when he, what he says is true. That's what allegiance looks like. It means believing. It means responding by loving and obeying God. It means following God wherever he leads. Allegiance looks like giving up all other competing gods and actively saying yes to the one and only God. Now, will that be limiting? Yes, it will. Will it be freeing? Yes, it will. Will it be popular? Likely not. But will it be worth it? 
definitely. Moses in Deuteronomy tells us that there's only one true God, and that God had acted in history past, is acting today, and promises a future to come. Give your allegiance to him. He, he won't let you down. Now, Deuteronomy ends with the anticipation that is yet to be fulfilled. The people eventually do get into the land, but it's not long before they start disobeying. And the wheels just come off, and the people soon are left under the rule of outside powers. As the Old Testament comes to end, there is again this anticipation of one who would come to finally free the people. In God's master plan, there was a better Moses to come, and his name is Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself is a better promised land, the place where all can go to experience the fullness of God's presence. Jesus loved the law. In fact, Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Bible. But Jesus is even better than the law, proclaiming not just rules, but the breadth of all that God had to say to his people. And Jesus perfectly lived every command that God gave. Jesus was driven into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. But he doesn't murmur. He doesn't wander. He, in fact, perfectly obeys God standing on the promises from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus not only demands atonement, the ultimate price for the wrongs we've done, he actually fulfills it by being cursed on a tree. See, Jesus takes the curse so that people like you and me could be blessed. Jesus willingly dies outside of the city so that you and me, people who believe in him, could be welcomed inside into safety and the security of God's presence forever. Deuteronomy is a big book of God's grace. God's grace gives you a grand story and a big family to be a part of. God's grace gives you a compass for you to follow so that all people flourish. And God's grace provides a dream for you to anticipate, a day to come when all will be made right where our deepest longings will be fulfilled. And the question Deuteronomy leaves us with today is, how will you respond to God's grace? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you speak to us. It is remarkable, God, that what you have done You've done so much to show us yourself. You've promised us much. You've shown us what it looks like to live well with you, well with the world around us. And you've given us a dream to anticipate, a dream of you making all things right again. And so, God, I pray this morning as we wrestle with that in our hearts, as we go into our weeks and we consider, God, what you've said compared to all that the world says to us, we ask, God, that you would stir something in us to believe you again, to trust you deeply, to believe that you'll walk with us and that you'll come through no matter what we face. And so, God, we know that this is true because you've already shown this to us in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.